Father God, we honor you and we praise you today. Lord, we've been walking through this journey through the book of Ephesians and God, how relevant the words are for us to understand who we are in Christ and the hope that that brings as we know what it means to walk and to live in Christ. God, today we start to turn a corner as the Apostle Paul then starts to challenge the church a little bit more specifically about living that out. Sometimes, Lord, some of these words can be challenging, but Lord, they're your words, and so we ask that we listen well, that we honor you, that we are willing to not just be hearers, but then be doers and put your word to practice in our lives. Father, this world needs to see the church operating well. This world needs to witness the church uh, living out your scriptures in excellence. And Lord, I pray we do that. I pray, Lord, you look at the body of Centerpoint Christian Church and you say, those are my people with whom I am well pleased. Father, speak to us in this room today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last seven weeks, this summer, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. We've discovered just in three chapters about who we are in Christ. We've been reminded about His great love that He has for us. We've been uh, encouraged to remember that even though in this world sometimes we may feel broke and that we don't have anything, but in Christ we are rich. We've, we've understood that because of Christ we are marked for the day of heaven because of what He's done when we've embraced our relationship in Him. We've learned that Christ guides us to see this world from His viewpoint versus our viewpoint because if we look from our perspective, this world is horrible and terrible and awful and Quite, on, quite honestly, depressing. And so we've learned, let's look at this world from Christ's viewpoint. We've learned that we are filthy sinners. Hard one to accept, but it's one that we wrestle with, that we are broken, filthy sinners, but Christ loved us and made us pure because of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, and that there is room at the cross for everybody. It's amazing. For three chapters, we just keep hearing over and over and over and over again, here is who you are in Christ. Here is what Christ has done for us. And it's been a message of, of hope. A, a message that hopefully has lifted your spirit to go, okay, even sometimes life is tough. And even sometimes I may not feel so good about myself, even though I'm struggling to know who I am in Christ. Today, we start into chapter 4. We now will get to some practical teachings of the Apostle Paul as we get into chapters 4, 5, and 6 about how to live this out in Christ. My intent over the next three chapters is just to hit a few highlights out of those chapters and not be so specific as we have been in the first three chapters. We could dive in and continue Ephesians probably for the next 10 to 12 to 15 weeks, taking section by section by section and breaking that down, but we're moving to some other things as we head into the fall. And so I want to pull out a few important passages, and probably what I'll do is I'll come back to Ephesians sometime in 2018 and say, remember we did the first three chapters really heavy, and we'll come back and hit chapters 4, 5, and 6 real heavy in 2018. But over the next three weeks, we're just going to kind of wrap up Ephesians by hitting some highlights. Look with me at today's passage, though. Such a key passage for the church and for God's kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4. Here is what Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You read that passage after Paul's been talking all this stuff about who we are in Christ, and I believe it must ask the question, why would Paul be so concerned about unity that he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling, be completely humble, be gentle, bear with each other a burden, make every effort to keep the unity through the spirit of the bond of peace. It's like, why would Paul have to put that into writing and say you must strive for unity? Some writers believe that maybe they were struggling with some factions and some fighting, some, some inward struggle going on within the church. And so Paul's like, now listen, here I just told you who, who you are in Christ, and so I want you to fight for unity, so I want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind. And it reminds them, hey, there's just, there's just one Lord, there's just one faith, there's just one baptism. Don't believe in all this other stuff that's bringing in any kind of false religion or false teaching. Let's be unified in one name, and that's Jesus. And you say, why else? other than maybe some struggles or some factions that are going on, I think it's because Paul wants to draw back to what he talked about in chapter 3 where he's reminding them of their purpose. And he's like, if you don't remember what your purpose is, then you get disunified and you lose focus. And remember what the purpose is. In Ephesians 3, he said, the church, the manifold wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I mean, in summary, our job is to proclaim Christ. Is that not true? And Paul says, I don't want you to lose sight of that. The manifold wisdom of the church should be that we make Christ known. That we are sharing the message of the gospel. That we are letting people know what it means to be in Christ. And Paul is saying, listen, if you're not unified in that mission, if you're not unified in that focus, then you'll get all this other stuff in a way and we won't do what our job is. And we know that is the theme throughout Scripture. I mean, Jesus told us to go seek and save those that are lost. In other words, make Christ known. And in Matthew chapter 28, we're told to go into all the world and preach and teach and baptize and make disciples. Again, making Christ known. That theme is carried throughout Scripture. And Paul says, you must be unified. Don't get disunified because if you do, you'll lose that focus and you will be weakened is what Paul's bringing to. Now, as I was reading that test, you start going, where did Paul get this idea about unity? Obviously, he got the idea from the Holy Spirit as Paul is writing this letter in jail. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to address this with them. But I also believe he got it because he understood who Jesus was. And he received the same message and he's sharing the same message that Jesus shared with his disciples. And so, in order to understand Ephesians a little bit more, I want us to do a little flip here and jump over to a different book today to catch the, the emphasis of unity that's in Scripture. So turn to John chapter 17. See, on the last night before Jesus went to the cross, He began to do what He actually does eternally right now. A few hours before His arrest, Jesus interceded and He prayed for His own disciples. 
And beyond his death, Jesus expected a very dynamic and growing church that would last throughout the ages. He was expecting this thing to explode. And when Jesus looked at the face of Peter and the circle of the eleven, he saw behind Peter the whole Pentecost and thousands more behind him that's going to come to Christ. And when he looked at the face of Peter, he saw you and me one day following in this message. When he looked at the face of John, he saw the church in Ephesus and all the churches of Asia Minor as the word would spread. And we saw the gap where Judas Iscariot had been, surely he thought of the face of Paul and all the churches of Europe and crossing generations and crossing oceans right down to this very day. He said, I pray for every one of them who will believe through the word of the original 11 that they will know who Jesus is. They'll know who the Savior is. Jesus prayed just one thing. He prayed for the believer's unity so that the unity of Christians would make such an impact in the world that people would want to know the Jesus that they worship and that they love. Look with me at the passage in John 17. Let's see how Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone. Start at verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he says, my prayer is not for them alone. My prayer is not just for the disciples. My prayer is for all those who one day will believe that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have looked and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You jump back to verse 22 and he says that they may be one as we are one. He says, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Does that not sound so familiar what Paul is telling us as well? There is unity in the message between the Apostle Paul and what Jesus prayed. Now let's think about this prayer for a moment with Jesus for a few minutes, and then we'll jump back into what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us. Jesus prays for the unity of the church. I mean, what could Christ have prayed for in the final moments before his arrest? Remember, it's just a few hours before his arrest. He's in the garden. He could have been praying about all kinds of things. He could have been praying, Lord, I'm going to go through this terrible ordeal. Lord, would you just give me strength? That could have been a prayer of his. He could have prayed, Lord, these 11 people that are being left behind, these just have, would you support them? Would you help them so they don't flee? Would you give them strength so, that they, you, so, they, so they're together? He could have been praying all kinds of things. Please protect their health. He could have been praying, as we know he did somewhat, Lord, take this away from me. Lord, God, some other way. But instead, his prayer was dominated by a single thought. Unity for the disciples. And unity for those who will follow. I don't know if I was in that setting that I would be praying and thinking about unity. He's praying for unity. Jesus knew that the church could never make an impact in a world that he wished it to make unless spiritually the world saw the oneness of the church, a unity. The churches of our world today have taken these words of Jesus 
without seriousness that they deserve. I think it's a text that we have, we have ignored, and that's why we have so many denominations in this world today. Sometimes one of the hardest questions to answer when you're witnessing or sharing Jesus with a friend is they say, well, why are there Presbyterians and there's Baptists and there's Catholics and there's Methodists and there's Christian church and there's disciples and there's this? It doesn't make sense to me, and sometimes, quite honestly, it doesn't make sense to me. The reason is, is because we're not unified as we end up with denominations. And then denominations confuse those who do not know Jesus. And so we haven't taken this call of Jesus, this prayer of Jesus, serious enough to say we are supposed to be just Christians, Christ followers. First of all, in verse 11, Jesus prayed for the unity of that original disciple group. This was no easy task, and Jesus knew it, so he's praying, God, I'm going to be leaving this earth. Keep these guys unified. I mean, in that original group, there was incredible tensions Tensions created by James and John when not long before that they had asked to be seated at the right and the left hand of Jesus in heaven, which caused an outrage of jealousy amongst the disciples, like, who's the greatest? Tensions created that evening when the disciples were fuming with rage because there had been an argument among them as who was the best. In that little group, there was all kinds of tensions. There was Matthew the publican who had sold out to Rome. There was Simon Peter, the zealot, who had pledged to kill people like Matthew, the publican. It's no wonder Jesus prayed the original 11. Lord, make them one. Lord, I, they need to be one if this is going to happen. If my message is going to be carried forward, and that wasn't enough, he moved beyond the 11, and then he prays for generations to come. In verse 21, when he prayed for them, he prayed also, he prayed for you and me. You look at the text, he's praying, he says, for all those who will follow, for in other words, all those who will accept this message, Lord, I want them to be one. The pattern for unity of believers is unseen like anything else. If it, is, it is nothing less than the unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as they are one. It is not merely of unity of organization or unity of purpose or unity of feeling or unity of affection. Just as the Father and the Son are one, Lord, I want us to be one. I mean, that's the comparison he makes. Just as God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter are all one, he says, I want them to be one. Unity of purpose. Christians are drawn to one another because they are drawn to a common center, and Jesus Christ is that center. Jesus prayed they be in us, for that is the source of the power and the unity. It's as if every one of us in the church were a piece of a crystal and a beautiful chandelier that God is making. And at the very top, you have God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit who are the brightest lights, and they reflect down the next level in the chandelier, and that is maybe some people that come through the generations, and they reflect down to the next level in the chandelier, and we're somewhere in that chandelier that as we receive Christ, we continue to reflect, but we look together as one is looking up at a beautiful chandelier and going, isn't that awesome? It's many different pieces, but it's doing one thing, it's providing light. And that's where we're supposed to be as a church. Many different pieces, doing one purpose, providing light, the light of Christ. He knows that when we are unified, our light as a church will shine brightly. And so Jesus prays that we are unified. He also prays for the impact of the unified church. The impact of the unified church is that the world believes God, the Father, sent Christ the Son, that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Jesus really elevates this. I pray that they are unified so that the world may believe it. And so you can look at the opposite of that and go, if we're not unified, then the world will not believe it. If we're not one, and only obvious, visible unity of believers will convince the world of the divinity of Jesus, of the power of Jesus. Only the sight of the unified disciples will convince the world of the truth of Jesus' message and mission. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Unfortunately, too many churches let the love one another action slip by the sideways where it becomes inaction, where it becomes not happening. We live in a world of disunity. I mean, we're seeing it all around us. Families are falling apart due to disunity. Businesses fail because of disunity. Workplace shootings due to disunity. Government is gridlocked and in a mess due to disunity. Schools suffer because of disunity. Athletic teams fail because of disunity. I mean, you just go on down the list and many times when things fail it's because there's a disunity of what you're trying to accomplish. And we get off focus. Some believe if we could just get a unified theology, we would compel the world to believe. But unified theology was never promised to compel the world to believe. Human eloquence will not compel the world to believe. The size of our churches will never compel the world to believe. No denominational program or slogan or goal will compel the world to believe. Only one simple thing will compel this world to believe, and it's a supernatural oneness in the family of God. And Jesus prays for that. Jesus prays, I pray that they are one so that this world may know. A truly unified community of people is a supernatural fact that they that must have a supernatural cause. The world is so disunified that a perfectly unified church compels the world to confess that God is at work among them or among us. On the other hand, a disunified church reverses all the work of Christ and it renders its witness of Him powerless and ineffective. See, when a church is working together in unity and then when we as churches work together in unity, it's amazing how God's Word will be lifted up and His message will be spread. There is a danger here, though. Because if we're disunified, we can reverse all that is accomplished by oneness. Now, I don't think any of us would want to strike down what happened at the cross. I don't think any of us want to be responsible. Would you like to be the one that rolls the stone back in front of the tomb and says, nope, Jesus, you stay inside the tomb? Would you or I want to say, hey, we, we want to go back to Pentecost and say to the Father, we don't need the Holy Spirit. You take the Holy Spirit back. We wouldn't want to say that. We wouldn't be responsible for that. But according to the words of Jesus, if we don't reflect unity that He desires, we just as well strike down the cross and say it's invalid. It has no purpose. And so the Apostle Paul and Jesus are unified in their message about how important unity is. I don't want to roll back the stone. I don't want to send the Spirit back to the Father. The world cannot believe the Father sent the Son unless we demonstrate spiritual oneness. They see disunity, it doesn't work. But wherever this occurs, it makes an incredible impact. The unleashed power of Jesus Christ impacts our world and and the church is unified. Lives are changed and the Gospel is spread. This isn't a secondary issue. Church, it's a primary issue. 
It's a great topic to talk about. Matter of fact, I'm glad, as I said last week, it comes up in our text. It's a great topic to talk about while I feel like we are a very unified church working together versus trying to talk about it when you're in the middle of some strife or some struggle, but that we keep a mindset that says, I will work towards unity for the gospel. So it means I must act now to see that the church is one. Where do I do it? We must act inside the church and outside the church. In the church, I must act as a unifying personality, and I must seek common ground. I must seek to be a unifier. The truth about any church is that there may be dozens and dozens of opinions at once, at a time, and dozens of the things that a church can do, and sometimes we may not agree with all of them, but we choose unity for the name of Jesus. Every single believer must decide to be a unifier in the midst of God's people, or they give Satan an opportunity to bring division. And division will destroy a church faster than anything you've ever seen. Disunity will destroy the work and mission of God here at Centerpoint faster than anything we could ever imagine. So we should pray for and protect the unity of this fellowship of believers so that Christ is glorified. The, the need for this kind of unity is not only needed in the church, but it's also needed outside the church. You realize that every Sunday, all over our area, there are people who come to church on Sunday morning and they worship and they go into their workplace on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and they complain about their church. I can't believe my preacher did that. I, can you, you know what you want to do during my church? They, they changed the music over there. And when we start complaining about what's happening in God's church, that causes disunity. And then people in the community that hear that, especially people who are without Christ, they go, why do I want to be part of that? And so we choose unity inside the church and outside the church. It is literally possible to commit spiritual murder outside the church in the world when we go out and we're not one and we start to complain or gossip, gossip about what's happening in our church. I would encourage the church, don't dare criticize what happens in your church or any other church. One of my pet peeves as a preacher is when people come to me and say, oh, my church, church A or church B or church C is doing this, this, or this, or this. Many times the response is, they have the choice to do that. It's their fellowship. They're allowed to do that. We don't understand what's going on inside their walls, but ten, what we tend to do is we tend to complain about even sometimes other churches or listen to people's complaints. Please don't do that. Because when you're complaining about the church, you're complaining about Christ's bride. And if somebody was complaining about your bride, you would stand up and say, hold on a minute, we're, gonna, we're ready to fight. So stand up and fight for Christ's bride, the church. Don't allow it to happen in your workplace. Don't allow it to happen in your life. Stand up and fight for unity. Thirdly, Jesus prays for the glory of a unified church. Jesus prays that the present church on earth and the future church in heaven will see His glory. Glory. It is what we see when we look at God. And the closest thing people can see to looking at God right now is Christians and how Christians behave until the day we're in heaven. Christ has already revealed all the glory we can comprehend on, her, on earth below. In verse 22, Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. We see in the divine manhood of God through Jesus Christ. For now, that's all the glory that our eyes are capable of seeing while here on earth. But verse 22 continues saying that the purpose of showing his glory was that they may be one. So he shows us Jesus so they become one. He came and showed himself to bring the world together. 
That glory transforms us even now. And Paul told the church in Corinth, we are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. Christ will fully reveal all of his glory. And he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am to see my glory. He wants us to be together and see the complete glory in heaven because there's more to come. We'll be perfect one day and we'll be perfect able to see his glory. The final object of the believer's thought will be exalted upon Jesus Christ. That glory is outward. It's a visible expression of love between the Father and the Son. And the last part of verse 24 says, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. We'll spend the eternity in the glory of God. Focusing on the glory of God. This prayer is Jesus saying, we need to seek unity and seek it now. Why? So we'll see the glory of Christ on earth and in heaven. So those who don't know Christ, don't know Him, will see His glory. And so that when we get to heaven, we'll experience the ultimate glory by seeing Christ, God as Father. Because Jesus puts us such a high priority in unity, I believe we as a church must do the same. We must always fight for unity. We must always seek unity, always protect unity. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. Paul tells us how to do this unity thing. It's laid out right there in a passage. Look what he says. Be completely what? Be humble. In other words, drop your pride. In other words, drop the what I want or what I feel or what makes me comfortable or what has to be just for me and say what is going to honor Him. If we all have the mindset that says what pleases God, what's going to please the Lord, then unity will happen. Secondly, Paul says be gentle. Or there may be times in a church where we have to have some tough conversations sometimes. Because as a church body, we're working on avenues and objectives of ministry together. Sometimes they're hard, but we choose gentleness in those conversations. We don't choose yelling and screaming and cursing and putting one another down. We choose gentleness even when topics could be tough. To be patient. To realize sometimes it takes time in a church to work through decisions or challenges that we're walking through to go, let's just be patient with one another and be patient with those maybe whose faith is not where your faith is at. To be patient, saying we come alongside to encourage and allow people the time to grow. And then he says to bear with one another in love. To bear with one another in, in love, to choose love. Does our world need to see love right now? Our world needs to see the church operating well. Our world needs to see us loving one another well. And Paul gives us the prescription to unity. Choose humbleness, choose gentleness, choose patience, and choose to bear with one another in love.